0: It's connecting. Okay, now we're just waiting for YouTube to load, but it looks like Facebook, we're live. It's and connecting. YouTube is now working. Great. So we can get started. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for attending uh, our third installment of the panel series in conversation with historians that features graduate students, faculty, and the future undergraduate students as well as we discuss current events and its relation to historical contexts. I'm Emma Scheinbaum. I am the co-organizer of this event. I am the excuse me, Communications and Development Coordinator in the Department of History here at Columbia University. And I'll now turn it to Saida.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Saida Islam and I'm the Faculty Affairs Coordinator here for the History Department at Columbia. Um, This is the fourth panel of In Conversation with Historians. (laughs) And I'd like to just say that um, Emma and I are very pleased um, with just the attendees and the amount of feed- positive feedback we've gotten and also for all of the amazing historians and students who have graciously volunteered their time to uh, join us on these panels every month. It's very uh, important that we have these conversations within our Columbia communities, but also with our communities at large, especially a topic so dear to my heart, like immigration. Um, Both of my parents are immigrants and I study immigration and it's an honor to be with some of the world's most renowned scholars and we have a professor as well and Columbia alum, Brianna. So we're just very, very pleased. Um, Emma's
0: going to introduce our panelists and
1: I'll let her take it from there.
0: Great. We also want to thank uh, our department and our department chair, Adam Costo, and our um, supervisor, Pat Morrell, and the committee on inclusion and diversity as well for co-sponsoring this event and we're so happy to introduce our panelists, uh, May Nye, uh, who is the Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History, who is a US legal and political historian interested in questions of immigration, citizenship, and nationalism. Before becoming a historian, she was a labor union organizer and educator in New York City, working for District 65, UAW, and the Consortium for Worker Education. Professor Nye is also co-director of CSER, the Center for the the Study of Ethnicity and Race. We also have with us today Carl Jacoby. Carl is the Alan Nevins Professor of American History and a specialist in environmental, borderlands, and Native American history. His books include Crimes Against Nature, Squatters, Poachers, Thieves, and the Hidden History of American Conservation, Shadows of Dawn, Shadows at Dawn, A Borderlands Massacre and the Violence of History and the Strange Career of William Ellis, the Texas slave who became a Mexican millionaire. Professor Jacobi is also co-director of CSER, the Center for the Study of of Ethnicity and Race. We also are joined by Pablo Pacato, professor who specializes in Mexican history. He has worked on the political and cultural history of Mexico and the history of crime. He is currently working on an overview of crime in Mexico during the 20th century. We also welcome back a GSAS alum and professor at the College of William and Mary, Brianna Nofill. She is an, sorry, assistant professor of history at the College of William and Mary. She earned her PhD here at Columbia and graduated in 2020. She is currently working on a book about the use of local, sorry, local jails and immigration law enforcement over the 20th century. And uh, as we begin to ask our questions, we also invite you to type any questions that you have for the panelists in the chat. And if you're on the live stream and the YouTube chat or Facebook comments, um, as well as the attendance within the Zoom chat, if you can put it in to all panelists as well. And we will try to get to as many as possible throughout the panel. All right, let's start today's conversation with, May, uh, let's just begin with the basics. Why do people migrate?
2: Ah, that's a great question. Well, people move all the time. You might move from Manhattan to Brooklyn, or you might move from New York to Ohio or Virginia. Um, you might just move across town. And it's only when, um, and you might go farther. you might move to another uh, state or another country because you have relatives there. Um, So people move all the time and they move for different reasons. They move uh, I think mostly for economic reasons or reasons that you could Say are for self-improvement because they sense uh, a better opportunity somewhere else Um, Maybe their situation is dire and they need to get out uh, To find something that can sustain themselves and their family or maybe it's not so dire but they they have an opportunity in another place Um, and uh, people also move I think for a combination of political and economic reasons. It's only very recently that our laws uh, separate these two things and treat them differently. And I think that's led to a lot of problems. So let me just finish by adding that it's only when you have nation states uh, that are concerned about their territorial sovereignty that immigration becomes a matter of uh, legal and political jurisdiction and then people have all kinds of uh, barriers that they put up, conditions for entry, conditions for removal. Um, But that actually is uh, only part of what constitutes a migration story. People have been migrating from one place to another as long as human history.
0: And to uh, follow up with that, let's, look at the history of migration and the timeline of when immigrating began to be criminalized. Like when wow. uh, you tell, discuss this in your book, in- Impossible Subjects, but when did the term settler shift? And so if you, can, if you can speak towards the making and unmaking of illegal aliens.
2: Okay, well, those are two actually somewhat separate questions. Okay. Um, the, the question co- of criminalization mm-hmm. actually it goes back to, um, Early modern history goes back to the English poor laws, uh, which were transplanted into the United States in, in the colonies in New England. So towns um, forbade people from entering or kick people out um, if they became indigent and they were considered to not belong. So um, migration restrictions and, and rules uh, predate, uh, well, actually, they go back to the settlement, colonial settlement. But you raise an important distinction between settlement and immigration. You know, a lot of people like to think of America as a nation of immigrants. But the first people who migrated here, who were not indigenous, I think, who are not could, should not properly be called immigrants. They were settlers. They were colonial settlers who were trying to recreate some version of their old country, England or France or whatever, um, in the new world. The Spanish as well. Um, and it's only, I think, in my view, in the late 19th century, when um, in-migration shifts from a question of settlement uh, to a question of immigration, which in a sense means that the country is established, um, the frontier has been reached. That doesn't mean that these are uh, not ongoing phenomena. They are, um, and, they, and they continue to be. But when people come as immigrants, they come to a place that's already set up.
1: Thank you for that, uh, May. I'm gonna ask the next question here for Carl. Um, And I had it
0: here, one second.
1: There we go. Um, So Carl, can you please uh, talk about pre wall on the U.S.-Mexico border? What was there and what was the border violence like and how has it evolved? um please if you could provide some context to the new border walls implications
3: sure i i thought what i the way i might answer this would just be talking about the creation of the current u.s mexico border and I, I because i think this is a discussion that this history is very much forgotten in the united states it's very present and aware in mexico but it's something that we don't think about much in the united states and i would say the the war with mexico which Take, this all trace back to the war with Mexico, which is 1846 to 1848, and this is really one of our most naked uh, land grabs in American history. I should bracket that a little bit by saying that all of the wars that the United States, the, the majority of wars that the United States has fought, have also been land grabs against indigenous people. But in the sense, the United States justified these by thinking about indigenous people, and here I'm quoting. Uh, the Supreme Court in its somewhat offensive language, but just to so get a sense of how around the time of the war with Mexico, uh, the United States was already thinking about indigenous people. They were calling them fierce savages with uh, only a right of occupancy to land. Now, you know, Mexico gets its independence. This is from a Supreme Court case in 1920, 1823 about uh, indigenous land rights. Uh, when Mexico becomes independent, initially the United States kind of flatters itself that Mexico is a sister republic and it's legible to the United States as, a, as, a, as another nation state, as a sovereign nation. It has many things that seem parallels to the United States, a constitution, a president, a Congress, diplomats, flags, generals, all these sorts of things. Uh, and so there's this brief moment where it seems the U.S. likes to flatter itself that Mexico is wants to become like them and they're sort of on a similar trajectory. Um, but then Texas secedes from Mexico, uh, mainly so that it can keep slavery there. The United States annexes uh, Texas against Mexico's wishes um, because it's basically a rebel province that should uh, be, be returned to Mexico. It then provokes a war with Mexico by sending U.S. troops farther and farther into Mexico and to the US until the Mexico finally uh, you know, fights back. And then it uses this as a pretext to seize uh, all of the northern half of Mexico, all the way to California. Um, And so the point here that why I think this is interesting is or why it sort of uh, illuminates a little bit. There's a lot of sort of fixation, I think, in the contemporary discourse about the supposed illegality of people crossing the border without documentation. Uh, there's very little discussion, obviously, about the legality of this land grab of the border crossing people in the 19th century without permission in this very uh, sort of transparent way that really the border is that we, we have today is an artifact of uh, anti-Indigenous policies and of slavery, the, the need for more land for slavery during this time period. Uh, and I think the other thing that's really noticeable for me about the war is that there is actually the war is often remembered at least in the united states is really not much of a conflict as, at all a very easily won conflict there's actually very fierce mexican resistance mexico actually wins the first battle the one that triggers the war and there's a very effective mexican guerrilla warfare against uh the united states but this is very much depoliticized so the united states talks about these people, not as guerrillas, not as you know, engaged in a political program of opposing uh, the United States occupation, but they're bandits. And so this discourse about bandits, which you saw when President Trump announced his bid for the presidency uh, four years ago, you know, this sort of presentation, criminalization of, of Mexicans and their behavior, has very deep roots that I think can be traced all the way back to um, the war with Mexico. Uh, and so, in many ways, the border wall is just a monument to these very deep, this very deep nineteenth century history that a lot of people tend to overlook and gloss over.
0: Thank you so much for providing so much context. Um, and Pablo, uh, if you uh, could join in and maybe if you want to add on to that, if you have any other context uh, or provide a brief hi- history of Mexico and the discussion of lands and borders, and perhaps how they've changed over time, and how those relationships have been affected with other uh, nations, and maybe perhaps the irony, uh, speaking towards the irony of uh, the treaties between the US and Mexico, and how those have been respected or not respected.
4: Well, I mean, I wouldn't have much to add uh, to Carl's uh... Description. I mean, from the Mexican history point of view, the the war with uh, with the U.S. was um, was something in a way inevitable, and that has been you know recognized by, by Mexican historians as, as a product of the weakness of the Mexican state after independence. You know, the Mexican government lost uh, mining revenue. Uh, it, it, it lost the important place it had in the, in the Spanish Empire. No? So the, the decades in which Carl mentions the U.S. recognized Mexico as a real country were also the decades in which the Mexican state fell into uh, instability and, and, and um, you know, lack of resources and emergence of a kind of a military class that controlled politics. So when the war came, many people saw this as an inevitable consequence of, centralism, uh, 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 a movement within Mexico that was intended to replace federalism, which was uh, you know, the, the kind of the natural way in which the country came together, no? uh, much like the US. No? So Texas is a response to centralism in the eyes of many Mexicans. And the defeat of 46 is seen as, a, uh, obviously, as an unfair uh, appropriation but also as a product of our own mistakes, as a product of our own divisions and and lack of patriotism and and weakness. So uh, the the history that comes after that uh, is very complicated because it's not seen simply as as, uh, unlawful appropriation, but as a kind of a a lesson about what can happen to uh, the Mexican country if uh, there's there's no unity and there's internal fighting. Um, So it's obviously very ironic because, you know, after, you know, 46, a lot of Mexicans were left on the other side of the border uh, and that didn't really change them. They, they continue to, you know, live their same lives, but they were in a different country. So what we see at that moment that, you know, I agree it's, it's very important to, to go back there is that, we have the divergence of two histories. So for Mexico as a country, and Mexico as a presence in the US with a population uh, that is very rooted and uh, has been there for you know, as long as uh, the Anglos have been. So uh, it, it's two histories in a way that start there that are very really interesting. Thank you so much for that, Pablo. My
1: next question is for Brianna. Can you- tell us how does ice operate? I know that's a loaded question, but if you could just simplify it as best you can. Um, what is their protocol? And really if they have one, I often ask myself that question.
5: Yeah, right, it's it's a, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, ICE has only been around since 2003 and it's created in this moment of kind of post 9-11 bureaucratic restructuring that, that gives us the Department of Homeland Security. And if you're confused about its mission, I think that's kind of by design. It has one of those missions that's both incredibly expansive, but also somehow like very ill defined. So I guess generally they see themselves as kind of having two tracks of what their work does. So the side that we hear about I think a little bit less is what they call um, homeland security investigations. So that division deals with like criminal movement of people, goods, and money across borders. And then the side we hear about more kind of really the core of their work uh, is called enforcement and removal operations. And that has to do with all of the enforcement of civil U.S. immigration law and also um, overseeing the, the 40,000 detention beds that the U.S. maintains. And so I think that the, uh, the reality that there is this kind of lack of clarity in ICE's mission and um, in like what ICE's priorities are make it really flexible and kind of make it able to suit and be used by various political agendas. Um, so in thinking about like what is their, what is their protocol, I think that part of the reason that question is is challenging to figure out is that because the, the work of ice isn't just being carried out by ice agents right it's also being carried out. Um, by local law enforcement and by this just huge array of federal contractors and you know really critically by private prison companies and the tens of thousands of people employed by private prison companies so like. I guess with detention, you know, like one of the critiques that immigration advocates made across the 20th century was that not only did immigrant detainees have less due process rights than other incarcerated people, but also that they were being held in these kind of physical spaces that were much less regulated. And, you know, they weren't saying that prisons were great, but they were like, at least there's there's some kind of standard here. And we don't have these standards for immigration detention. And that speaks to a lack of protocol. And I think that the reasons there aren't protocols are, partially a reflection of kind of how many different groups interests intersect with ice work. So, you know, you have private prison companies who want to keep the margins high, you have um, an immigration service that wants to be able to kind of put up and shut down immigration sites as problems arise and you have uh, like a, a US government that wants to ensure it can put up a site very quickly if a, like immigration emergency happens. Right. So, um, Yeah, I think I think broadly, these are all factors that dissuade the agency from kind of creating more set standards. And we also know the standards we do have have been quite radically eroded over the past several years. So
1: thank you for the clarification, Brianna. My next question is for me. Where did this idea of limiting migration come from, and how did that produce criminali- criminalization of
2: immigration? Thank you for asking that question. That's, a, that's really important uh, because I think we have um, a situation where, I think over the last maybe uh, 75 years or more, um, the idea that we need to restrict immigration, we need to have a number, a ceiling on the number, that's become completely normalized in American political and legal thinking. So the idea that we we should have uh, no number is completely unthinkable uh, for many people. And yet, that wasn't always the case historically. Uh, Up until the 1920s, uh, there was no numerical ceiling on how many people could come. And immigration was largely governed by the labor market, both by uh, pull as well as push, right? um and so there were uh there were there were exclusions based on uh, if you were a pauper or a criminal or if you're chinese but there was no numerical restriction and that becomes thoroughly that that's become thoroughly normalized but if you think about um in other parts of the world uh in other parts of the world there aren't uh there aren't these kinds of barriers between countries and one of the big innovations of the european union was to have free migration between, uh, among the EU states, right? So they drew a fortress around Europe, but within Europe, right, there was uh, basically open migration. So I think the first thing we have to do is to think about um, these restrictions as being historically produced. There's nothing natural about them or inevitable about them. Now, why did it happen in the 1920s? Well, I think it happened in large part as a response to uh, native as opposition to the immigrants from Europe, Italians, Jews, Slavs, etc, um, who uh, were accused of all kinds of things that would sound very familiar to people today. Uh, they're dirty, uh, they're different, they have a different religion, um, they're lazy, they don't learn English. Uh, they live in um, uh, unsanitary conditions. You know all the they have diseases. All the things you hear today were said, um at the turn of the 20th century and it wasn't until after world war one that that had enough political momentum to achieve uh, restrictive law and the law put a ceiling that um, limited migration to 15 percent of the pre-world war one annual average 15 percent that's a huge drop now once you say there's a restriction then you have the inevitability that there's going to be so-called illegal entry or unauthorized entry, because if you have a ceiling of X, then the person who's X plus one is the undocumented person. So that's another important thing about this whole question, which is that undocumented immigration is not something that has to do with, um, say, uh, the individual, right? It's not a character flaw of the migrant it's purely a product of the numbers and if you raise the ceiling you would potentially have fewer people entering without documents and if you had no ceiling at all people are afraid that we would be overrun with uh, migrants but at the turn of the 20th century when we had no ceiling we weren't overrun quote-unquote you know it kind of figured itself out um so i think that this is uh something that i you know actually Before 9-11, that summer, um, then President Bush, George W. and President President Fox of Mexico were actually planning to meet, to discuss opening the U.S.-Mexico border to a much more relaxed uh, immigration system. And then, you know, that of course went out the window with 9-11.
3: Can I just add one quick follow-up point to all the- Yes, please do. All the really important points that May made. I think it's really instructive just to compare 19th century borders and our current 21st century border, which is say, as, as May underscored, in the 19th century, uh, borders are pretty much open to uh, keep the flow of peoples with this early exception of, of immigrants from China in the case of the United States. They're actually fairly sticky in terms of the flow of goods so that the United States doesn't have income taxes in the 19th century, it generates most of its revenue actually from duties on goods as a way of protecting domestic manufacturers. And so people can flow easily, goods, can, goods cannot flow easily, capital cannot flow so easily. And now opposite our partners, now, right? <laughs> exactly, it's been flipped around. So now our borders, we've done all these things like NAFTA and it's the sequel, which were all about allowing goods and capital to flow very easily across borders. But over time, we've actually seen the flow of people across borders get incredibly difficult. And so um, it's, a, it's a real, it's sort of the inverse situation of where we were in the 19th century. And this is why I think it's important to have a historical perspective on what's going on because people talk about sort of we live in this multinational or whatever inter transnational world. But in some ways, the 19th century was much more transnational for the flow of people uh, than our current moment is right now.
2: That's why you had to have an empire to keep your goods flowing. Yeah. Like
1: the British. Yeah. So, my follow up question to that. Uh, May, and whoever else would like to answer as well. Um, how does a government government turn asylum seekers into quote, uh-huh. illegal aliens, both in policy and in public discourse? And this is something that you talk about a lot, so.
2: Yeah, that's a really, really important point uh, right now because actually the um, most of the uh, pressure on the southern border is not from Mexican migrants, but from Central American migrants. And they, uh, for the most part, have come to ask for asylum. Now that's become a very uh, tricky business. Uh, they are fleeing, uh, for sure, violence and um, instability in, in their home countries, much of which um, is caused by uh, proliferation of gangs. Um, uh, and so they are asking for asylum. But they also, you know, as I said before, migration is usually a combination of economic and political motives and so people um, are also um, leaving Central America because life is precarious there it's not only violent but it's also economically precarious. and we shouldn't we should acknowledge that and 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 uh, and respect that now the problem with the law is that it says you either are an economic migrant or you're a political asylum seeker or a refugee and and the eligibility to be a refugee or asylum asylum is actually very narrow and these are, um, we think of these as human rights norms, but they were really crafted uh, as Cold War measures, right? Uh, mostly to uh, help people leaving communist countries uh, in Europe uh, and then later the Soviet Union. They didn't even want Chinese communist refugees, they were for European communist refugees. And you had to be an individual who, you had to be someone who was individually. Persecuted, tortured, um, or otherwise um, threatened uh, on account of your religion or ideology, race, etc. So these are very narrow grounds. It rules out anybody who say is a climate refugee, anybody who flees an area of violence who has not personally been persecuted or tortured. It's it's actually a very uh, small eye of a needle to thread. And so the rate of rejection of Central Americans, uh, asylum seekers, is extraordinarily high. It's up. It's over seventy-five percent. And and now under the Trump administration, of course, they don't even give you a hearing. They just decide the border patrol decides you're not eligible. Boom, and you're gone. So that's how they turn asylum seekers into so-called illegal aliens. Um, at this point, we're not even giving them the right to have a hearing. And so it's a complete travesty of the
0: law, as as problematic as the law is. If anyone else wanted to uh, add any thoughts on asylum, um, we can now, Um, but we also have a question in the chat that I'll uh, incorporate in um, from Mika. Hadn't there been nativism and xenophobia in the mid 19th century, as well as in the 1920s? that cannot alone explain the new immigration limits. It does technology, e.g. better transportation, explain why only in the 20th century was a ceiling introduced? And that's for anyone who would like to respond.
2: Well, absolutely there's nativism in the, ni- the mid 19th century. There was tremendous hostility, um, especially towards Irish, especially the famine Irish who were um, uh, opposed, not only because they were Catholics, Uh, because they were poor. And many of them were deported, but under state laws, because um, until 1875, uh, immigration was not governed by a federal policy. But states like Massachusetts and New York especially had vigorous screening and deportation and removal of poor Irish people. So yes, you're right. Um, Nativism has a very long history, and it chooses its targets um, according to circumstance you know then there were Chinese who were excluded altogether um, uh, and then later the Europeans at the turn of the century. But I think that um, one of the differences in uh, in the United States of 1920 as opposed to 1900 or 1850 is that um, the United States already have, by then has um, what you might call a, a mature industrial, economy a lot of the huge the huge numbers of migrants who came from europe in the late 19th and early 20th century they were the muscle that built the industry and cities of this country Um, and so um, the expansion of the economy and the increase in gross national product came not through increases in productivity but just sheer numbers of people doing work um, and by 1920, you have
4: uh, productivity increases more more through technology um, and labor discipline. Right? So you also, they don't need as many bodies as they did before, so to speak. Can we say, May, that, um, I mean, even though there was nativism in the 19th century, and, you know, it was xenophobic and racist, to an the extent, there's something different now because of the the legal construction of the foreigner and the, the ability of the state to enforce those laws through uh, um, the, the system that Brianna knows very well, that really denies rights to, to people, right? So um, I think that that's uh, perhaps answering the question that, that, that was posted in, in the chat. No, I mean, there's a long tradition, but something is new today which is, you know, the layers of law, the, the state capacity to enforce it, and obviously the political use of, of the same nativism. I mean, uh, uh, which I don't know if you agree, but I think is is different today from the kind of uses of xenophobia that we had in the past.
2: Yeah, you're right. I, I agree with that. I mean, I would also say that, you know, in, in our own time, um, you have uh, the racist, the racism. I mean, after 1965, immigration into the United States came increasingly from non-European areas. That was new, right? So that um, in the early 20th century, 80 percent of the people who, 90 percent were from Europe, and by the year 2000, um, 80, uh, close to 90 percent are non-European. So that's definitely a question, and it ties into the long history of U.S. imperialism um and uh racism towards uh, people in the uh in the in the so-called third world that's definitely true um uh, but i also want to say you know immigration law enforcement it's selective you know like the reason why you have so many apprehensions at the southern border is because that's where you put all the border patrol right i mean you put them somewhere else you might be picking up some different. you put them in maine you would be picking up a different kind of person right so it's very selective and then, you know, when immigration was so high uh, from Latin America and Asia in 1990, they added a diversity quota, which was done so they would be more white immigrants, right? I mean, so they wanted to have more white people come. And the irony is that the people who took advantage of that were, there were some Europeans, but a lot of Africans took advantage of that because you had to have a low, a history of low immigration. So it's also very selective. Where they, where they have raids, I mean, Brianna knows about this, where the raids take place, where the Border Patrol is stationed, where
3: they give new visas to... Yeah, can I just add in two points there? One of them is, we don't often hear about it in uh, immigration enforcement issues, but one of the groups that is deported at the highest rate is Haitian people, and that's often just because the African-American community is so heavily policed, over-policed already. Uh, And so they get caught up in these nets and are deported. Uh, And then the other issue that I think is, maybe we'll get to this later in one of the questions, but I think we've allowed for a century this very extreme um, enforcement mechanism along the border, particularly the border with Mexico. And I think we're at this very interesting historical moment where perhaps we're seeing those uh, institutions and policies that were developed targeting mainly Latinos now being extended into the center of the country and, and and catching up increasingly other people like White protesters in Portland and when white protesters in Portland face this They're shocked and outraged But if they've been paying attention and what's been happening on the border for a century They would realize that other communities have been facing this level of intense policing for a very very long period of time
0: Thank you for Noting those as well. Thank you all for your responses to that question. And thank you for that question. <laughs> um, and uh, Carl, uh, how has, this is, I guess, a little, it seems like a little bit shifting gears, but we will definitely be circling back to all these topics. It's all connected. <laughs> but uh, how has the American history of destroying indigenous and native ways of life and lives negatively impacted the literal nature and environment um, and ex of this country and, for example, the um, increasing wildfires, um, for example, in the West Coast and the seemingly expedited climate change uh, that we all are experiencing. Um, And I I guess that's what the question is. Uh,
3: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question, obviously. And I think we've seen how we're all connected with this. few weeks ago in New York there was a huge plume of smoke right over the city which was all to be traced to the fires out on the west coast. Uh, one of the When the United States seizes the northern half of Mexico this is one of the big differences actually is that these tend to be arid lands uh, much more arid than what the United States had ever faced before and uh, there's a fairly well-known report uh, John Wesley Powell comes out in 1879 on the report of the arid lands so Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, um, California, and his big conclusion is that the way to protect these landscapes and deal with aridity is to remove Native people from the landscape. In many respects, the United States is already doing this, right? It's a settler colonial nation. It's removing people from dispossessing Native people's integral to basically creating the settlers, allowing people to come over as settlers, the way that May was talking. But this adds a, an extra layer to the argument, which is to say that environmentally, to per, to conserve uh, nature, you need to remove indigenous people from the landscape, particularly because they were using uh, these sorts of cultural prescribed burning. It's a way of, it it's basically setting very low level fires that will open up new growth and will actually prevent these sort of raging forest fires we have now because it uses up the fuel. You can really think about it as a a more distant form or sort of unrecognized form of cultivation because it creates an ecology that works really well for the indigenous peoples. And so what we're facing now is if, if you removed um, indigenous people from the landscape, the landscape in, in essence becomes a historical text and you can see the consequences of what's happened. There, you know, the loss of knowledge, not the indigenous communities still have the knowledge, but non-indigenous people have, have blinded themselves to this sorts of knowledge that can be used. The other thing obviously is just the creation of the border that goes cuts through uh, dozens of indigenous homelands. And so this is a big issue um, we're seeing right now. There's, I don't think there's been nearly enough coverage in the news, but in Southern California uh, with uh, Tonafam people and Southern Arizona, there's been a lot of complaints that they're building the big new border wall right through these indigenous homelands and really cutting people off from ritual sites. Uh, and I went to a conference at uh, the, the, the Yaki Pasqua in in Arizona were putting on recently where they're complaining about often they have to go to cross the border with ritual items and border patrol people are trying to you know tear apart their their ritual items to see if they have drugs inside or not and so there's <clears throat> the border is also doing another form of violence against these indigenous uses of the landscape as well so those are Two of the really obvious uh, dimensions of, of what we're seeing in the West.
0: Thank you. Um, this actually uh, seems to be, this can be for anyone, but we also, we have another question from the chat that's related to this um, line of thought. Um, early on, Carl, you mentioned that the U.S.-Mexico border was built with anti-indigenous purposes. To what extent does that continue to be true? How are indigenous groups considered in these conversations about immigration? I'm not sure if that, maybe you already (laughs) addressed that, but if.
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I'd say the very first group that uh, the border tries to control is indigenous people. So the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo actually is trying to control the crossing of indigenous people across the border. Uh, You know, in terms of immigrants, indigenous people are not seen as immigrants. You know, when it's immigrants, it's of course, as May was talking, it was the Chinese, but the early target of use of the border is really trying to control indigenous um, mobility. Uh, and basically, the, it's interesting, the Treaty of Guadalajara, when you see the border, it's, it's creating a Mexico and a U.S. and completely erasing the presence of any indigenous uh, homelands at all. And most of that land actually, in some ways, the United States has to fight, in essence, two wars. They fight a war against Mexico in 1846-48 to claim the land for Mexico, Mexico has its own process of trying to claim that land for the United, from indigenous peoples, and then the United States fights a much longer war, and a much more brutal war, uh, where they, which you know, in cases of like California, has some of the worst examples of, of genocide in American history, of claiming this land then um, from indigenous communities. Um, you know, certainly, what I the, the issue about immigration is a lot of these indigenous people would like to have. Their own rights to cross, as in members of indigenous communities recognize and be able to cross on their own passports, uh, and not have to, you know, have their sovereignty recognized. Uh, and in some ways, they would like to sort of set themselves outside the discussion about immigration and really focus in on the issue about these are. This is an indigenous homeland that has preexisted long before U.S. or Mexico existed, and we have a preexisting right that needs to be recognized. Um, and so that's certainly something that. <coughs> In the last, as it's sort of as this conversation has evolved and as the enforcement mechanism, as, as Brianna was talking about, you know, after 2003, when you get the, Do- the Department of Homeland Security, this massive expansion of the security apparatus there, uh, the indigenous communities have then tried to, I think, get more organized among themselves to uh, present a united front on these particular claims.
2: Can I add something to this? Something that um, Carl and I both teach uh, a course in ethnic studies called Colonizations and decolonization. And when we talk about um, Native America, uh, one of the things that we talk about in my classes uh, is that some of the first borders and walls or fences that were built were built by English colonists in Virginia to demarcate a line beyond which Native peoples weren't supposed to cross. Right. And so the thing is that they kept moving that they kept moving that line westward as they kept encroaching on the line that they set up themselves. Um, but in a way, you could say that the very first walls and borders that were erected um, in, in the colonies, American colonies, were against native peoples.
3: Yeah, definitely. definitely. So if you're listening, take this course. Yes,
0: I want to take this course. <laughs> um, thank you for those responses. Um, Brianna. How does, I know that again, this is like also a very loaded question, but if you could uh, break this down for us as simply as possible, how does ICE and local sheriff departments work together or how rather how do ICE and local sheriff departments work together in policing people and enforcing immigration laws? Are they two different entities or one in the same?
5: Uh, thanks, Emma. Um, this is a great question. I think it it kind of gets us back to the point we were making earlier about like how does ICE choose to use its resources, right? Like they have a kind of finite, theoretically finite number of dollars and um, collaborating with local law enforcement is one of the major ways that they're uh, able to to go beyond maybe what their budget normally would entail. Um, so sheriffs have been really powerful allies for the immigration service and you know we have we have records from the early 20th century talking about how the immigration service is like we've got to get sheriffs on board with this project and the reason is not because they think the sheriffs are going to enforce immigration law right the reason is because the sheriffs control the jails and the immigration service sees these jails as central to carrying out deportations to carrying out chinese exclusion um and so I think that these partnerships, these kind of long enduring partnerships between the immigration service and local law enforcement, they're they're a way for the immigration service to kind of legitimize and make their work seem like legible law and order work, and then I think it's also a way for them to kind of punch above their weight a little bit, um, and in turn, like what do the sheriffs get out of it, right? Like throughout. 20th century what they're getting out of it is they're getting they're getting federal money and they're able to do things like expand their jails because they've got more inmates coming in they're able to in some cases cut taxes for communities and so you know communities and the federal immigration service kind of come to see this as a really potentially mutually beneficial relationship and um you know today these relationships are more expansive than ever we know that the immigration service isn't just using local law enforcement like to borrow resources or to borrow space but they've they've really come to see it as as their main way to identify removable people. And so we know that the the path to kind of ending up on ICE's radar now typically or frequently goes through the criminal justice system. Um yeah, and I guess the other point I would just make about like thinking about sheriffs and thinking about counties is that these relationships look totally different ways, right? There's like 3,000 counties in the US and each of them has their own relationship with ICE. So like on the one end, you have counties who have embraced sanctuary policies and have minimal cooperation with ICE. And on the other end, you have counties where ICE is like set up in the police precinct and the jailers are going to ICE training camps. And so like maybe the glass half full take on all of that is that you know, it, it does give I think activists uh, like a juncture. Like there's a there's a place to apply pressure there, um, because you know there, there there is latitude, right? There's latitude for local officials in determining what sort of relationship and how much how much they want to collaborate and cooperate with with federal immigration law enforcement. And we should note too that. Um,
2: uh, that local jurisdictions cannot be forced by the federal government to cooperate with them. That's why sanctuary, so-called sanctuary jurisdictions are entirely legal and constitutional. So, um, and so I think like Brianna's work is really brilliant in showing us how immigration enforcement is not possible without local cooperation. The federal government does not have the capacity. It never had the capacity. And today when you have 10 million um, un- uh undocumented persons in the united states they absolutely cannot do what they want to do without local law enforcement and so that's where i think you're really right brianna that activists really can you know kind of put a monkey wrench you know gum up the wheels in a sense um by by forestalling that cooperation or pressuring our local officials to not cooperate
1: Thank you Brianna and May. Our next question is for Pablo. How did Trump and previous administrations exploit the xenophobic and racist quote-unquote violent Mexican narrative to further their political agendas and how can we work against this rhetoric? Um,
4: Well uh, as Carl mentioned the the image of Mexicans as bandits uh, has a long you know history but how Uh, one important chapter in that history is the Mexican Revolution, where uh, U.S. troops were massed in front of the border. There was even an expedition of U.S. troops into Mexico in 1916, uh, and uh, there was this idea of Mexico as an anarchic and violent country. But the the most relevant context is, I think, something that has happened in the last 30 or 40 years, which is the increasing Uh, pressure from U.S. governments to criminalize, to enforce the laws against drug trafficking in Mexico um, has created pressure on the Mexican government that in turn has uh, increased uh, enforcement and the role of security forces to fight against drug trafficking. So we have a, a progression of violence since the 80s. One can say that an important date is 1986 when... Uh, the Guadalajara cartel killed Enrique Camarena, DA agent in, in Guadalajara, and that really uh, put a lot of pressure on the Mexican government to start you know, um, arresting people. The result is that we have more uh, infighting between criminal groups in Mexico, more violence in the country as a whole, and an idea that Mexican Mexicans are violent, uh, that has spread beyond... Uh, even beyond uh, the US, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really paradoxical because um, in many ways it's a violence that is determined by uh, law enforcement pressure. It's also made possible by US weapons that are very easily bought across the border and transported into Mexico. It's financed by US consumers because they buy the drugs that make these criminal organizations so powerful. And even you know we have a few examples of U.S. citizens becoming very important actors uh, 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 as sicarios or enforcers in the U.S. Like um, you know there's uh, there's several characters you know that, that became very famous and they were U.S. citizens. The reality is that Mexican drug organizations are very careful not to use violence across the border, not to create trouble. Uh, uh, or to attack U.S. citizens. In terms of the political uses of this, uh, it is clear that uh, um, the the enforcement of the border and the number of deportations uh, grew uh, very fast during the Obama administration. What we have there is not just high numbers of people deported back into Mexico, but a lot of uh, people in prisons, uh, in, in U.S. prisons be sent back to Mexico, tens of thousands of them, uh, which had repercussions in Mexico too. I mean, uh, um, so what we see today being capitalized politically is something that didn't start suddenly in 2016 uh, or in 2015 when Trump said that Mexicans were rapists, right? I mean, it is uh, it is something that has been building uh, this image of Mexicans, but also this these political uses of, of uh, this uh, fear of Mexicans. So, so what we have today is, uh, is uh, again, uh, uh, several contradictions between the reality of immigrants as uh, statistically people who commit fewer crimes than native-borns, right? Because that, that has been, but the, the idea that they are dangerous and that they are connected with with violent crime, right? Um, um, the idea that Mexicans are dangerous and the reality that hate crimes against people from Mexico and Latin America are increasing, uh, that they're in fact victims of, of, of violent crime more often, no? um, and you know the, the kind of the broader contradiction that I pointed out earlier, uh, uh, the true origins of this failed war drug that uh, has been plaguing Mexico in the last couple of decades. Can, can I just
2: can add? I ask Pablo a little question?
4: Okay, I want
3: to add okay. some points afterwards. Go ahead.
2: Okay, um, I mean the United States is a very violent country. We have tremendously high uh, rates of gun violence, crime, um, you know, etc. So, is there any do you, do you have any comparative data that show the relative uh, incidence of violent crime in the United States versus Mexico?
4: Well. Um... The, the best way to compare this is not very precise is uh, murder rates right I mean how many you know people get killed by per 100,000 inhabitants? No, That's something that we can compare across countries. And the, the rates in Mexico are higher than the US overall. But one of the mistakes that we make when we compare these things is that we look at countries as a whole. So if we look at the murder rate in Yucatan, it's extremely low. It's like one or two uh, per 100,000. If we look at the murder rate in some cities in the US, it's higher than the average in Mexico. Now, if we look at certain regions of Mexico, uh, and this has been shifting in the last 10 years, you know, it used to be some cities on the border, now Michoacán, Guerrero are very high, Oaxaca. We have very high rates uh, of, of murder. Uh, but they're very concentrated in a few municipalities um, if we compare those rates even with the rates in Venezuela and Brazil and Honduras they're about average I mean they're not outrageous but they're high right so um, I think it's a uh, it's a um, it's a difficult comparison, but I wouldn't just say that Mexico is more dangerous than the U.S. You know, it's it's a, such a broad statement that it's impossible to prove. Yeah.
3: So I just wanted to build on what Pablo was saying about the sort of militarization of the border. I think there's this very long history of this that certainly goes back to the Mexican Revolution. And in fact, one of the things that's really interesting is how much the the intervention in Mexico is almost a dress rehearsal for the United States before it goes to uh, fight overseas during World War One. So General Pershing, who's cha- who actually gets to start chasing Apaches along the U.S.-Mexico border, but then leads the intervention who tries to capture Pancho Villa. Um, and the, the U.S.'s first use of airplanes and tanks and machine guns, all of these things um, in a military setting is actually along the Mexico border before they get to um, before they get to Europe. And in many ways, I think the border still continues to be this laboratory where they're experimenting with drone warfare and all these other sorts of things, these heat rays now that they're supposed to use, these microwave heat rays that will heat you up and uh, repel people. All these, you know, the, the, we've al- basically, we allow ourselves to do things along the border that we wouldn't allow ourselves to do elsewhere. It's become this, it's a long standing laboratory for this kind of behavior. And one other thing that, uh, and this sort of builds on what Brianna was saying, that I think has a- accentuated this is when you get the creation of the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, which is it, it combines this idea of war against terror and war against narco's, the, the, the drug war that preexists, and they kind of get combined, and you have these fever dreams. Although I, I think there's almost no evidence of narco's and, and terrorists working together. You know, they have very different motivations and. and um, and objectives, so it never happens, but they, they have been congealed. This this idea that there's a narco-terrorist threat along the border has sort of congealed in the popular memory or the popular mind. And the, the last point is, and building again on Pablo's on the unevenness, is a lot of the cities, the border cities on the US side of the border are actually some of the safest cities in the country. El Paso is very, very safe. Uh, San Diego is very, very safe. San Antonio is very, very safe. And so proximity to Mexico does not have anything to do with violence. And as as May's question was suggesting, a lot of the the violence that, we have our own organic reasons here for this violence, which are completely unconnected to uh, proximity to Mexico.
2: Or immigration at
3: all. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, I'm learning so much. (laughs) Um, And, Carl, you were quoted in a recent article by Russell Contreras of the Associated Press on the Mexican-US Underground Railroad, um, which I had never heard of before. And for those who were not able to read it, could you please give a brief summary of the findings?
3: Sure. So I think we're all familiar with the more familiar Underground Railroad, which we think of as going from—this is in the antebellum 19th century pre-Civil War—that allowed uh, uh, Enslave people to self-emancipate by going north you know harriet tubman uh, frederick Douglass, all those examples uh but th- what's interesting about both frederick Douglass and harriet tubman examples they're both from north the very far north of uh, the south they're from maryland and you know they're close proximity to the north and it's remarkable what they did but it was a fairly short really the center of gravity for slavery uh for enslavement in the antebellum period is moving south and west it's moving into texas it's in louisiana it's in mississippi and increasingly in texas for people there the real place to to run is not north which is an incredibly long and possible journey it's to go south into mexico and we don't have exact numbers the best estimates i've seen are at least five thousand people are doing this but um it's there's a very steady flow of people, of enslaved African-Americans for whom Mexico represents the land of freedom during this time period. And I think it's been hard for a lot of Americans to, to realize this in part because we just don't know any Me- Mexican history, but also because the idea of running north still suggests that the U.S. is the land of liberty. But to really turn that on its head and say, actually, you needed to go south, you need to get out of the United States together uh, for emancipation is is a little more jarring for Americans. And in fact, after um, the the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, of course, the South could reach into the North and see slaves uh, in, in some way, place like New York, but they could not reach into Mexico. In fact, Mexico refuses to sign a treaty of extradition that will return uh, enslaved people to uh, their enslavers in the United States. And this is a little hard to to prove, but I actually feel like One of the last places Robert E. Lee is before the Civil War breaks out, he's on the border with Mexico. He's chasing around after fugitive slaves and supposed Mexican bandits. And there was a lot of tension over fugitive slaves in Mexico. And I feel that it's not at all impossible the US and Mexico would have gone to war again over this issue had the Civil War not broken out when it did.
1: Thank you for that, Carl. My next question here is for Brianna. Can you please give us insight into the violences in ICE detention camps and past camps this country has constructed? What is a history of hiding these experiences? And can you also speak on COVID regulations in camps?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Detention has always been a fundamentally violent act and it's it's not always violent in ways that make headlines or ways that are flashy, but I think it often looks more like neglect or like lack of access to care Um, and at its core, it's always about the separation of people from family and from communities and You know, I think that one of the things that's really clear in kind of the archival sources we do have about the history of detention is is how people often speak of like a spiritual death in detention, if not like a physical death, like this idea that the system is just designed to force you to give up. Um, And I think that one reason that the violence is so, so maybe like empowered in in these spaces is because of the fluidity with which detainees can be moved around the system. Um, like we said before, right, because ICE and its predecessors have this kind of vast network of different sites, some of which are prisons and some of which are detention sites and some of which are like the Hampton Inn that gave them a good rate, right? They're able to um, move people when people cause problems. And I just cannot tell you how many times you see like throughout history, like you know, there's a skirmish with a guard or the detainee starts circulating a petition or a lawyer starts asking questions. And then the next day, the detainees are in five different states. Right. And so I think that kind of this this flexibility the Immigration Service has had to move people um, has really, you know, it's been both a tool to kind of reduce the visibility of what's happening in these sites. Um, And I also think it's been like what these immigrants very much recognize it as, which is an intentional means of of thwarting organizing and thwarting resistance that's coming from within these sites. Um, And of course, there's very few legal protections for detainees who are being transferred through the system. We know their lawyers often aren't alerted. We know their families often can't locate them. So I think these transfers are, uh, you know, just one of many factors that are enabling the type of violence we see. Um, yeah, and I I guess I would also note that, you know, we're we're asking all these questions right now about kind of the moral and ethical uh, validity of these sites or how we defend this. And I think it's important to remember too that people have been people have been asking questions about if this is moral or legal for like 100 years. And I think people often have really troubling takeaways when they think about the validity of detention. Like I think there's often a rhetoric that like well, some people some people deserve to be incarcerated, but not 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 immigrants. Immigrants don't deserve that. Or um, so, but even despite these, like maybe they're not people who aren't always coming to the conclusions we want them to. But I do think it's important that we are not the, the we're not the first era to to ask if this is if this is okay. Yeah. Uh, I do have a follow up question,
1: Brianna. Re- recently has been exposed that forced hysterectomies occur- occurred in an ICE facility. This act is sexual oppression, gendered violence, and by UN definition, genocide. We only know about this because of a whistleblower. Could you speak towards this?
5: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. The, Of course, the, the forced hysterectomies news is just, like, it's horrifying, and it reflects a much deeper history of of reproductive control and injustice that is particularly focused against women of color and institutionalized people. Um, Yeah, and it deserves a full investigation. I guess the thing that I'm really thinking about was just kind of cycling back to your your question about COVID too, is that, you know, the report and like the, the whistleblower report about what happened here, right? The hysterectomies were just one part of this much longer report about medical neglect in detention and about, um, you know, like how COVID has just absolutely ravished these centers and how many kind of deaths there have been because of lack of access to medical care. And so I guess it just makes me think about kind of where we where we put our attention in all of these things and all the just kind of like more mundane ways that detention enacts violence and it makes me think about May's point about how, um, you know, just caps on immigration have just become normal. Like, it's hard to imagine the U.S. without an immigration cap. I think that's kind of like what this kind of just mundane violence has sometimes become with the detention centers. Like, there's these moments of explosive, shocking allegations, but then there's just kind of this, like, this din or this hum of perpetual injustice that I think it's it's really hard to get people to pay attention to, but is is a really big part of the problem. And so I think that's kind of a an open question for me is how do we how do we spur attention not just about the most shocking allegations, but just the day to day atrocities that happen as well. Yeah.
2: Thank you.
4: Yes, please do. I mean, I I, I think I agree completely that violence is inherent to the system, right, as Brianna was saying. Uh, And obviously that these allegations about uh, uh, abuses against women have to be investigated, right? But don't you think that there's something that um, is uh, particular of this moment in which the violence is not just something that uh, ICE and the government is trying to hide, but it's also something it's using, uh, at least Trump is using as a, as a way to show his strength as a leader and and his uh, willingness to go to any you know lengths to to stop migration. Right. So, in, in a perverse way, that violence against immigrants is 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 also propaganda, right? Uh, um, for for the need to you know. Uh, you know, stronger enforcement, more border patrol. I, I always think about the the sheriff, this sheriff Arpaio, right, like who built a career out of you know selling at the local level that kind of uh, tough, you know, immigration attitude. No, so uh, it's it's. Uh, I agree. I mean, it's very difficult to call attention to these things, but I and it's necessary to do it, right? I mean, to, but at the same time, we have a government now who. That is calling attention to it in a way, as, as part of his rhetoric.
0: Yeah?
3: Thank you. Um, Can I add one point too? I'm just
0: yes, please we do. Have,
3: we haven't talked much about the border wall. Um, I guess maybe that's my fault because Saida did ask me a question that sort of pointed in that direction. But one other thing, just to think about, and another layer to this discussion about violence is that you know this is one of the biggest infrastructure projects in the US has ever undertaken. So far, we've dedicated about $20 billion, $20 billion to it. That's just to construct it, not to um, deal with the maintenance, which will be billions and billions more. And so we just think about what one could be doing with all of that sorts of money, uh, rather than b- putting it in this frankly rather useless um, sort of monument to, to xenophobia and racism along the border. I think that's one other dimension to the the violence. I was thinking a little bit when Brianna was talking about, and Pablo's comment too, which I think really pointed out the ways that this violence is both hidden and not hidden. I think we've allowed our, a lot of us allow ourselves not to focus on it. And I do think also, you know, it's interesting that Trump wants to get this out both to his own base and I think to send a message to possible immigrants um, in, in in Central America, Latin America, that, don't come because we might rip up your family and, and lose your kids um, and so there's just these multiple layers of, of, of violence that are here but I do think even just the the where you're deciding to put your resources is part of that story.
1: Thank you absolutely yeah thank you We have one question here from YouTube that I'm going to ask and uh, anyone can feel free to answer it. How much of a role do us tv and hollywood media productions contribute to the proliferation and socialization in xenophobic ideas and how does that compare with media productions within other countries does anybody want to, to? yeah we can come back to it later too. yeah
3: well i can take it first i mean i i feel like uh and this has been we're at this moment where, if you think about Hollywood in particular, where there's been a lot of attention to representation of African Americans in the movies, I think the discussion on Latinos is much farther behind. I think that the, the roles seem to be incredibly stereotypical whenever you're looking for a bad guy. The Mexican drug dealer is always the person. I mean, there are these narco novellas and telenovelas like La Reina del Sur that look at um, that are Mexican that are sort of, but they always humanize the, the, the drug dealers in a way that you never get in the US media. And so it's a little bit of an echo chamber where I think we have a political discourse that already does this. And then I think our cultural discourse tends to do this as well. And it's, I, I want there to be a moratorium on the, the Mexican drug dealer character. Like I just don't want them in any more uh, movies for a good 10 years so that we can be, begin oh. to just put these, put yeah. these to rest.
4: Netflix would go broke, uh, (laughs) uh, that's like the whole genre. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, uh, well, another question for Carl, um, but this was (laughs) pre-written. In your recent LA Times op-ed, you talk about how uh, CBP or the Border Patrol's jurisdiction is in the first 100 miles around the border. Where there's a relaxation of political rights and laws. However, this distinction is eroding. CBP has been at BLM pro, sorry Black Lives Matter protests or for example in Portland. So why is this bad and alarming? <laughs> what happens when border law comes inland? What does this say about border law to begin with?
3: Sure. In some ways this builds I think on what Brianna was talking about um, earlier that there's a, there's a very long-standing situation. So the border patrol Was created in 1924 so we've more or less been living with this for a century Um, and there's always been a sort of mission creep on the part of the border patrol which is to say it's always been a little unclear where the border ends and where the quote-unquote homeland begins where the border patrol in some ways isn't supposed to intrude and if you look at the historical record the border patrol has always tried to um, sort of ooze more and more into the center just it's easier actually to have strategic checkpoints in the interior rather to actually right be at the boundary line itself Uh, and so in 46 congress passes a law in response to the fact that the border patrol is kind of going wherever they want and they say that they have to um, be a quote-unquote reasonable distance from the border and then in 1953 the department of justice with no public debate Chooses a hundred miles as a reasonable distance, and this hundred miles doesn't just mean the U.S.-Mexico border and the U.S.-Canada border. It also means the maritime boundaries, so that actually here in New York City we are within this hundred-mile zone. And in fact, because most of the large cities are either on the border or on the the coast, uh, about two-thirds of Americans, two hundred million Americans, the majority of Americans actually live within this border zone. And in this border zone, the um, the border patrol or its its sort of successor, the Customs and Border Protection, doesn't have to follow all the Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure. So uh, this, we saw this in Portland when they were, you know, when you saw that uh, CPB was grabbing people off the street without warrants and people were outraged, what's going on? But this was, they were saying, we don't need a warrant. We don't have to act in this way. Uh, And within 25 miles of the border, they uh cpb can actually come onto private land without a warrant so they can go wherever they want they they can't go into your house but they can come onto your private land um so i think that this distinction is really invidious i think any erosion of constitutional rights is a real problem and we never had a debate in 1953 so i think we actually need to have this debate now and then i think the 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 mission creep is still there so that recently For instance, uh, CPB drones were flying over Minneapolis-St. Paul during some of the Black Lives Matter protests. That's 250 miles from the border. There's no legal basis for them to be doing that at all, but there seemingly so far have been no consequences for them exceeding what they're supposed to be doing. So I think we have created, and the last point I want to make here is that CPB is now the the largest law enforcement agency in the country. It's got about 60,000 personnel. And so we've created this out of sight out of mind created this very large sort of monster uh, that we have very little oversight over and it can be applied. We should care because of what has been happening along the border, but if you don't care for that reason, it can potentially be applied against all of us and we should be very worried about civil liberties. I think to sort of point to the debate today, I mean, if there's protests about Trump not stepping down, I think that CPB will be sort of one of his super uh, police forces that he will use to try to put down unrest uh, around the elections if something like that happens. That's uh, kind of my nightmare scenario and why I think these border issues uh, matter for everyone.
2: Can I add something to that? I mean, in a first way, you could say that the definition of a border at 100 miles was a reform, because before they had complete run of the country, right? and so um and so uh and in the past we didn't have a distinction between um border patrol and immigration officers right i mean they go anywhere and so this was used in particular against chinese regardless of where they were in the country um and they define crossing the border um as an ongoing act an ongoing offense so it's not just when you cross a line but it's until you reach your interior destination, wherever that might be. So that's why, that's one of the reasons why unlawful entry has no statute of limitation because it's considered a so-called ongoing offense. Like every day you wake up and you're still breaking the law, right? That's their, that's their logic. Um, But before, um, and I think part of the reason for the pushback and the the call for uh, defining a, a border zone Uh, was because they were running amok all over the country um, against uh, Chinese, absolutely, but also increasingly against Europeans, and they used it against labor radicals who are immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree with what you're saying about the dangers of this, but I also want to point out that what they're doing now is actually going back to what they used to do.
3: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Thank you.
0: Um, I'm
1: here. Emma, did you want me to
0: ask the next question? Yes. Okay. It was was listed as that, but I can (laughs) Um, Well, we have a question that that was submitted, but it's actually uh, pretty similar or related to a question we also have pre-written. So we can just pose both questions at the same time. Uh, And Brianna, you're most qualified to respond to this one. So this one's directed towards you. Um, uh, from Facebook, someone asked, can you can you discuss the children in the detention centers? There are an alarming amount of articles about how they're lost to the system, how parents lose track, and some get adopted. There's also a lot of speculation of reports of these children lost, uh, potentially being uh, put into sex trafficking. Um, if you uh, can speak to that, but uh, related to that, we also we're just wondering like the, what when a child and a parent are separated at the border by ICE, what happens?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that like part of the answer to this question is there. there's a lot we don't know right now. And I think there's a lot we probably won't know for years. Um, but kind of generally speaking, it might be helpful to, to remember that like kind of how the border looks right now is, is different than how it looked two years ago. Um, Right now, the majority of families who are crossing the border are being deported or returned to Mexico before they're reaching detention. And this is in part because the current administration has used the pandemic kind of as an excuse to turn away asylum seekers. And we also know, right, that um, family separation was formally ended and of course not really ended in practice. And the reason it hasn't really ended in practice, right, are these legal loopholes that still exist. So um, if a parent has a criminal record, regardless of how small the offenses are, or if someone comes with a grandparent or a cousin, they can still be separated from their family member. Um, but we do have a sense that you know it's it's not what it was in 2018. Um, So for children who are separated, the kind of general process is that they are are held in a facility, sometimes called a shelter or a detention site, and then the Office of Refugee Resettlement, so a a separate office from ICE, um, attempts to locate family in the U.S. And so what we saw in 2018 was that the Office of Refugee Resettlement it becomes just radically overstretched. They do not have the shelter space for this many children. And that's why, you know, a large part of why we see these shelters that look like someone put them up like overnight. Um, so the big concern here and like oh, how we get to this question of our young people being exploited uh, ties to the question of how is the ORR vetting the people it's releasing minors to. Um, and so there's been, yeah, uh, questions about labor trafficking. There has been also just concerns about, um, you know, there's lots of religiously affiliated foster groups that are that have taken in migrant children. And, you know, some of these are, are questions about exploitation, Other, others are just questions about like, do these foster parents have the resources to deal with children who have been through this kind of trauma? Um, and so, yeah, there's dozens of legal actions pending right now. Most of them are torts about, um, about what children have experienced in this, in this few year period. And I think, I think this is going to be, it'll be something that we will learn more about as it goes on. I'm going to
0: try to wrap up. We're only going to do a few more questions.
1: Our next question is from, uh, Could you speak on economic and demographic changes in the last decades,
0: especially since the 1990s? Perhaps uh, yeah, how it pertains to forced migration.
4: Yeah, migration. Yeah. Um, well, um, um, in very general terms, we see that the Mexican population grew very fast in the in the second half of the 20th century. So by the 70s, 80s. You have a big size of youth cohort in Mexico that uh, um, you know many many people move to the US. Um, we also have a uh, several economic crisis that push people to seek uh, go and uh, um, work uh, in in the US in the 80s and then again in the in the 90s that was very clear. Um, those uh, push factors are not the only ones that count. I mean, we all we should consider the existence of networks of people who already lived in the U.S. and facilitated the the migration of people from Mexico to the U.S., especially again since the eighties and nineties. But um, the the big change that we see in the flow of Mexican migrants to the U.S. Uh, is the shift from a seasonal or cyclical movement of, of migrants who used to come to work in a, a harvest or, or a you know, specific sector of the US economy and then go back to Mexico into a more permanent migration. And the main cause for that are the migration policies that the US established, uh, you know, under Clinton mainly, where the crossing into uh, the US became more difficult because of enforcement. Uh, and as a result, the cost of, of, of the crossing also went up in, in the fact, in sense that uh, if you hire somebody to help you go across the border, um, you had to pay more. And you had an additional risk. If you went back to Mexico, you didn't know if you could come back next season, right? So the result is that the the number of Mexican migrants detained in the border has been dropping. The the Mexican population in the US, which is about 11 million, uh, is very stable. It's not uh, because it's people who will have a big difficulty in going back to Mexico and returning. And uh, that I think has, Change the the shape and the, of of Mexican migration in a in a very uh, important way. I would add to you know what May was saying. You know, if you look at the number of people detained in the border, the number of Mexicans has been dropping, and the number of Central Americans has been increasing. Um, that's a big uh, you know kind of change in the in the recent migration that we see now, and it's something that. Uh, uh, you know, if it was difficult for Mexicans to cross into the U.S., you can imagine how difficult it is from someone from Honduras or or, or uh, El Salvador to cross Mexico and then get into the U.S. It's, it's, uh, the cost is very high and the danger is very high. So um, I don't know if I answer the, the question, but I guess going back to, to the initial question, I would say that economic factors are important uh, but the two economies have been integrating for a while, uh, and there are other variables, other you know man-made problems that have changed the way in which uh, migration works.
2: I would just I would just add to that that another factor in uh, is the changes in the American uh, economy in the structure of the economy mm-hmm. as we have a more um, uh, you know that what people refer to as the Shrinking of the middle class or the deindustrialization, uh, the drop in manufacturing jobs, but you have an increase in service jobs, jobs in um, restaurants, uh, gardening, uh, construction, et uh, etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, and those are low wage jobs for the most part. So that's also because the growth of those sectors is also encouraged more integration.
0: Thank you. Uh, um, we are going to wrap up. We just have one more question um, directed towards May. Um, this is kind of a multi-pronged question because we have one from the Zoom chat, um, but it, it is also relevant to our pre-written closing question. Um, so, how m- have diseases and pandemics impacted U.S. immigration at other points in the past? Have there been similar mo- Sorry, have there been other moments similar to our cur- current moment? Um, where COVID-19, with COVID-19, where US citizens traveling abroad or emigrating has been so restricted?
2: Right, that's a great question. Um, I would say first that I think it's uh, historically a pattern in um, epidemics uh, that people look for an outsider to blame. Uh, in the Middle Ages, pe- people blame Jews for the bubonic plague Um, Chinese were blamed for the plague uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century Um, so it's I don't want to say it's a human response because it's a social response but there is I think this kind of go-to reaction to blame outsiders right Um, which is a a very bad response (laughs) Because um, it's the germ that travels or the disease that travels, uh, not, not an ethnic group or a nationality or a race that travels. Um, uh, the, the example that comes to my mind uh, immediately is the um, uh, instance of bubonic plague in 1900 and 1901. Uh, first in Hawaii, uh, where they burned Hawaii Chinatown to the ground to, to try to control it. Um, and then San Francisco, where they quarantined all of Chinatown. They quarantined it in a really racist way, which is that they drew the quarantine line so that it kind of accepted houses that white people lived in. So they had the zigzag quarantine lines, so that if you were white but you lived on the border, you were outside the zone, but all the Chinese were inside the zone. Um, and they wouldn't let people leave or anything. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, there was a huge race, racist backlash against against Chinese. Um, a few years later, there was another instance of plague in San Francisco, and it hit mostly uh, white people, not Chinese, um, and they didn't use the same kind of brutal measures um, against
0: them. Thank you. Can I, can um, I
3: just add to that, that thanks. one of the things that I find really um, significant, well, is how early on the US-Mexico border has been cast as a medicalized border, as a sort of supposed to be protecting you from these foreign invaders of which, in the ways May was talking about, end up being cast (laughs) as germs as well. So in El Paso, for instance, early on, they have all these policies about de-lousing and and the idea that Mexican immigrants are going to bring diseases into the United States. It's actually a little bit ironic because during the Porfiriato they actually had a better sort of public health system in, in Mexico than they did in much of the United States during this time period. But it's a very, uh, in the ways of May was saying, it's this very old trope and then it gets uh, applied to a lot of these policies along the border so that we now have this this groove that we think about the border as supposed to be protecting us from all sorts of outside threats, one of which is supposedly germs and, and illnesses.
2: Hmm.
0: That reminds me of the irony of when the Europeans came to uh, Turtle Island, or the original uh, United States, when the Indigenous people were here, and they brought so much disease. (laughs)
2: smallpox.
0: Yes. (laughs) Um, Great. Well, this was a wonderful, really, really informative and productive panel. I'm going to turn it to Saida uh, to close it up for us.
1: I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us for yet another very insightful conversation uh, we are actually planning a part two to this panel uh it was birthed at our last uh meeting and we all were sort of talking about just action right because oftentimes we ask ourselves well i've consumed all of this knowledge but what 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 can I do or you know can I make a difference and the answer is yes everyone can do their part and make a difference our next panel is going to be about the activism work around immigration reform and detention centers and a lot of Columbia professors and students are doing some amazing work and we'll hopefully get to showcase all of the work that they're doing and how um, everyone can get involved next month so please stay tuned for that And we'd like to, again, thank all of our panelists for joining us and have a
2: good night, everyone. And thank Emma and Saida so much for organizing and moderating. Yeah, great job, thank Thank you. And the department, thank you.
3: Thanks department, thanks everyone for tuning in. Take care.
0: Good night, everyone. Good night.
3: night.
4: Thank you, Emma.
0: Thank you, Pablo. Bye. Oh, did you have a question?
4: Sorry about the dog at the beginning.
0: Oh, no worries. I I I love pets. My cat is sleeping on this chair. Oh, but (laughs)
4: that's yeah, You know, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, she often comes up on this, so I was there was the chance that that was going to be too. All good. Thank you so much.
4: Okay. Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye.